it's interesting that as we interact with people, as we talk with people about missions, we find that many people don't really understand what missions is all about, and they have lots of questions. And sometimes I have to give a defense for my existence as a missionary because people don't necessarily understand what that means. But you know, that's not anything new because the Apostle Paul found himself having to do the same thing. In several places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary, had to defend his ministry. He had to explain why he did what he did, what motivated him to do what he did, what his message was. Paul found himself having to give a defense. And the passage that I want us to look at right now is one of those defenses. Paul finds himself in a situation where the Corinthian church had questions about who he was, what he did, why he did it, and what his message was all about. And so in this particular passage, Paul is giving a defense of his missionary ministry. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to look at three things, three aspects of Paul's missionary ministry that he explains in this defense to the Corinthian church. Now you say, well, why are you doing that to us? (laughs) Well, because I think if we understand these three perspectives that Paul had in his defense of his uh, missionary ministry, I think that this can help us in the ministry that we have as ambassadors for Christ in the world where God has placed us. And so as you listen to what Paul talks about in terms of his ministry, I want you to think about what he might be saying to you in the ministry that you and your family and this church might have in the place where God has called you. I'm not going to read the passage again. Our brother already read it. I'm thankful for that. Um, But I do want to look at three aspects of Paul's missionary ministry. Three aspects of Paul's missionary ministry. The first thing that I want you to consider with me is the motivation for Paul's ministry. What was it that moved Paul to devote his life to missionary service. Maybe even when I'm all done, there might be someone here who says, I want to do the same thing. Anyway, that's a side point. What was it that motivated Paul to his ministry? Two things that Paul mentions in this passage. The first thing we find in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, it's not politically correct to talk about fear as a motivation for ministry, right? But that's what Paul says, doesn't he? He says that it was the fear of the Lord that pushed him, that impelled him out to persuade other people of the gospel. Now, you say, well, fear of God. Isn't he talking about what Proverbs talks about, the fear of the Lord? No, he's not. And the context is really clear, showing what he means when he says it was the fear of God that impelled him into this missionary existence. Look at verses 9 and 10, the context. Paul's been talking about the body and what what will happen. He says, I have a body waiting for me (laughs) in the heavens, a heavenly body. And the body that I have now, I'm going to lose. Right? I'm going to die. I'm going to lose this body. And that's not the goal. The goal is not to be disembodied. The goal is to receive the new body. Well, then Paul says in verse 9, he says, So whether we're at home, that, that is in the body, or away, 
from the body, if we're dead or alive, he says, this is our purpose. This is our ambition. We make it our aim to please him. Incredible. Paul says, whether I'm dead or alive, in this body, out of this body, I have one driving ambition. It's to please God. You say, why? Why, Paul, was it so important that you please God? Paul continues, verse 10, for, this is a word that means explanation. I'm going to explain what I said. For, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One of the primary reasons Paul says that we need to please the Lord, that he sought to please the Lord, was was because he recognized that there's coming a day of universal accountability. When all humanity will stand before the judge of heaven and earth, and he will make a verdict. And what does he say is the basis of the verdict? What does the passage say? What we've done, good or bad. Our works. Now, tranquilo. Uh, That means be calm. (laughs) He's not saying that we're saved by our works. All of Scripture is abundantly clear. It's absolutely impossible to be saved by your works. But it's also impossible to be saved without works. No one will ever be saved by their works. But no one will ever be saved without works. Our works are not the thing that saves us. Our works are the things that confirm that we have a faith that is valid. We have a faith that is a saving faith. What kind of Christianity do you have if that Christianity does not usher forth in good works? What kind of devotion to Christ is it that doesn't result in a transformed life? Paul's not saying that before God, he's going to examine our works and say, oh, you have enough works, you're saved. You don't have enough works, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when we stand before the judge, the judge is going to evaluate our works to confirm whether our faith is a real faith or a false faith. The idea is that many will stand before him in that day and will say, look at all the great things we've done. And he will open the box and he'll pull them out and he'll say, this is not evidence of a genuine faith. Paul said that recognition produced fear. Not a fear that paralyzed me, a fear that motivated me, a a fear that impelled me to go out and and talk to, to human beings and say, do you understand what's at stake here? All of us will stand before the judge and he is righteous and just and he will declare a verdict over every human being. And you can't fool him. You can't fool him. He knows. And in that day of judgment, he will declare the verdict, righteous or unrighteous. Your faith has been validated or your faith has been revealed for what it is. Paul says, that's why I go out and try to convince, I try to persuade all human beings because I don't want 
this mass of humanity that is in danger before God because they don't realize what's at stake. Paul says, that's why I persuade men and women because of what's at stake. Now, notice that Paul says, I persuade. He doesn't merely say, look, there's lots of alternatives. Pick the one that you most like. No, Paul says, I go out and I try to persuade people. I try to convince people. I try to show them this is the way. There's only one way. There's not alternatives here. The judge is looking for one answer. Be persuaded. Choose Christ. But also notice that Paul doesn't use manipulative methods in his persuasion. He's not twisting arms to try to control people. Paul says in verse 11, he says, what we, are know, what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. That is, Paul's ministry was a transparent one. Right? He recognized that the same God who was going to judge the works of all humanity was going to judge his works. And so he didn't use trickery or deceit to try to manipulate people into the kingdom. Paul said, I'm transparent. I just give you the message and let God do the work. But I'm trying to persuade you. There's only one way. Come to Christ. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing veiled. Paul simply went out to persuade sinners to follow Christ so that they could escape the fearful verdict that awaits sinners at the time of judgment. When you think about the final judgment, how does it motivate you? Do you say, well, I'm justified, so I'm not going to worry about it? That's wonderful. But what about all the people who are in a wholly different situation? Paul says, that fear motivates me to give my life to persuading others. That's his first motivation. Second motivation is found in verses 12 to 15. Paul says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In other words, Paul's ministry was not a ministry of self-commendation, patting himself on the back, congratulating himself. There was a lot of other people who do that. And, And I can tell you in the world of missions, there's lots of people who do that. Paul says, my ministry is not motivated by that. I'm not trying to self-congratulate. Paul's motivation was totally different. He goes on in verse 13, 4. If we're beside ourselves, if we're nuts, (laughs) he says, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. And here's here's the motivation, 4. Again, an explanation. 4. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ is what drives us. It's it's captivated us. And Paul continues, and he says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What was it that motivated Paul to ministry? What was it that grabbed his heart and captivated him, that, that, that 
produced in him this, this desire so profound. What was it? It was the fear of God, but it was also the love of Christ. Paul says the love of Christ has so revolutionized my life that I, I can't do anything else than give myself to this ministry of persuading others to come to Christ. The love of Christ controls us, says Paul, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Paul is saying at least two things. First of all, he's saying that the love of Christ that led him to the cross is universal in its scope. He died for all. But it's not just that it's universal in scope. Paul says another truth is that if he died for all, then what's the result? That all died. Have you accepted your death? Have you accepted that you are dead? That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the love of Christ demonstrated through the cross has captivated me because I recognize that Christ died for all. But in that he died for all, that means that all have died. Now, um, Paul's view of humanity is important. It's important that we understand the structure, the way that Paul views humanity. Paul divides humanity into two groups. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Paul always sees humanity in one of those two spheres. You're either in Adam, everyone born into the world is born in Adam. Everyone who is born again is transferred from that world of in Adam to the world of in Christ. What Paul is saying in this passage is that the reason that the the, the love of Christ has so captivated him is because he has come to understand that all of those who are in Adam and all of those who are in Christ have a different reality. All of us died. Christ died for all. That means all died. But Paul says something else. He continues in the verse, and and he says, he died for all so that, here's the purpose, so that, what does he say next? So that those who live, wait a minute, Paul, you just said all are dead. How can you talk about someone who's alive when you just said that all have died? Who is alive if everyone's dead? He doesn't say, does he? Paul is assuming something. He's without saying it explicitly. What he's assuming is that those who are in Adam are all dead. Dead in sin. But by the marvelous grace of God, there is some who have been transferred from that world of death into a world of new life. We've not only died with Christ, but we've been raised with Christ. And that's Paul's point. Those who are in Adam, dead, without hope. 
But those who've been transferred from in Adam to in Christ, we who live, Paul says, there's a whole new reality for us. He goes on in the passage to say, so that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. Do you understand what Paul's saying? Do you understand what the cross of Christ means for your daily existence? First of all, it means you who are dead have been raised. You're no longer in Adam and all the consequences of that. You are now in Christ. And everything that's true of Christ is true of you. But it also means that everything that you were is gone. Your old man your old nature, your old existence has been crucified. It is no longer what defines you. It's no longer your reality. You have been transferred into a whole new world. You are in Christ. You have life. But as someone who's in Christ, <coughs> Jesus Christ died so that you would no longer live for yourself. No longer be selfish. Selfishness, self-centeredness has no room in the life of a Christian. Christ died to pull you out of the center and to put himself in the center. The greatest lie that a person who is a Christian could ever live is to think that I am the center of my own life that I am the controlling factor and force of my own life, that my rights, that my privileges, that my desires, that my dreams are what determine the course of my life. Paul says, you're dead. By the grace of God, you have new life, but that new life that you have is a life where you are no longer in the center. Christ died so that we would no longer live to ourselves. It is so sad. The majority of conflicts happen because of our selfishness. Paul says there shouldn't be selfishness because Christ died to take you out of the center and to put himself in the center of your marriage and your family and your church and your job and everything you are and everything you do. Paul says the love of Christ constrains me, it motivates me because I now understand that I am not the king of my own life anymore. I understand that I don't, I died. I have a new life, but my new life is a Christ-centered life where he's at the middle. He determines my motivations. He determines my dreams. He determines my directions. Everything has changed because I'm dead. And my new life is a life in him, and he's at the center. Two motivations for Paul's ministry. Fear. Everyone's going to stand before the judge. And the love of Christ. I'm dead, and he's at the center. There's a second aspect of his ministry that I want us to consider, and that is the perspective of Paul's ministry. How did Paul view his ministry? How did he view his life? How did he view everything as a result of what Christ 
had done in him and uh, in the world. What we find in this passage is that Paul's encounter with the love of Christ, that love displayed in the cross, was so transforming that it completely reshaped everything about him. It reshaped the course of his life. It it reshaped his perspective on ministry. It reshaped everything. Everything in his life now was cross-shaped, cruciform. Three examples that Paul gives of how this cruciform existence was um, evident in his life. First of all, the cross radically changed the lens through which Paul saw people and, in fact, through which he interpreted all of life. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, from, uh, from now on, therefore... The word, therefore, is not really the word that should be there. <laughs> Paul says, so that. In other words, he's giving an application of what he just said. This is an implication of what I just said. The fact that, that, that I'm dead and that the purpose of the death of Christ was to strip away me from the sinner... Paul says, what is the implication? Here's one implication, the first implication. He says, so that from now on, what does it mean when someone says from now on? Right, uh, you're you're a kid in your house and you disobey, right? And your mom, some of you had to have disobeyed sometime. You disobey and your mom says to you, from now on, you're not going to do that. From now on, before you come to the dinner table, you're going to do A, B, or C. You, you understand, oh, yeah, from this point forward, everything's different now. I've got to start washing. You've you got to start washing your hands before you go to the table. You never did it before. From now on, you're going to wash your hands before you come to this table. You say, there's a new page in my life, a new, a new stage in my life. Everything's changed because there's a stake right here, and it says, what I did before, I can't do anymore. From now on, everything has to change. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, so that from now on, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. The result of the cross of Christ and its impact in our lives means that from this point forward, we can never think the same about anything in life. We can never see anything in life the same. Paul says we can't look at anyone according to the flesh. The word flesh is a slippery one in the Bible. It has many different meanings depending on the context, like all words. The meaning of a word, a word doesn't mean anything until you put it in a context and the words around it give it meaning. The word flesh is that way. It has about eight different meanings in Scripture depending on its context. In this particular context, the word flesh means worldly or human or earthly. Paul is saying, from now on, because of what Christ has done, because of the cross and its impact in my life, from now on, this point forward, I can no longer look at another person from an earthly perspective, from a human perspective from a worldly perspective. I can't even look at Christ that way. My perspective, my perception of people and situations and life itself must be different. 
We have to begin looking at all of life and every situation from a cross-shaped, a cruciform perspective. Everything has to be different. Do you realize that the glasses that you wear as a Christian should shape everything you see and everything you do in life, everything you interpret? One of the most sad things to me is to see the way politics in the United States has divided the church. Paul is saying you can't look at politics the same. You can't look at politics as a Republican or a Democrat. You have to look at politics as a cruciform individual. You have to look at politics through the cross. You have to look at economy through the cross. You have to look at relationships, marriage. You have to look at work, everything through the cross. Our life and our perspective must be reshaped by the death of Christ. It is the sole factor that determines how we see life. We can't know anyone ever again, Paul says, according to the flesh. We can't even look at Christ the same way. The cross has reformed everything about us. Our lens must be different. We have to look at everything from a cross-shaped perspective. There's a second example that Paul gives of how the cross has transformed all of life. Paul says that the cross has also radically changed our citizenship. Verse 17, once again, the word therefore is not the word It's so that, once again, it's the same word in verse 16. Paul said, let me give you another application of how significant this cross work is in our lives, how it reshapes us. He says, so that if anyone is in Christ, remember the two spheres in Adam, in Christ, Paul says if anyone has been transferred from in Adam to in Christ, this is what is their new reality. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Um, It's an unfortunate translation. There's no verb in verse 17. Literally what Paul says is so that if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's common in, in the New Testament to use what's called ellipsis when they, they forget the verb, right? And they assume that the reader will know what it, what's there. We have a tendency to translate the Bible and to read the Bible in an individualistic way, always thinking of ourselves as individuals, right? It's one of the great flaws in evangelical Christianity, unfortunately. Paul is not primarily saying that if we're in Christ that we're a new creation it's true it's true we are a new creation everything has changed in our lives it's true it's true it's true but it's not what Paul has in mind Paul is saying so then if you've been moved from in Adam to in Christ you are part of something bigger than just you being a new creation you're part of everything becoming a new creation Scripture is very clear. God is making everything new and we're a part of it. What Paul is saying here is look it. 
The turning of the page of history has taken place with the death of Christ, with the resurrection of Christ, with the ascension of Christ, with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. History has been transformed. We're entering a new phase. The old age has gone and the new age has come. You are a part of the new creation now. You're not waiting for the new creation. Yes, we're waiting for the fulfillment of the new creation. It's not here in its fullness. It's only here in seed form. But Paul says, my reality is not governed by what I see. It's not governed by my opinions. It's not governed by what I think would be good. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation and we're part of it. The old age has passed away. The new age has come. God has turned a page in history for those who are in Christ. Our citizenship, isn't this not what Paul says in Philippians 3? Our citizenship is not on earth. It's in heaven. The Jews divided history into two stages. The present age. What was the second one? The age to come. That's how they viewed history. The New Testament does the same thing with a slight alteration. (laughs) What Paul is saying here is that Christians, if you're in Christ, you do not belong to the present age. You belong to the age to come. You are an agent of a whole new world, a whole new reality. We have to live in light of our true citizenship. I live here in the earth. I live in the old creation and I have to deal with all the things in the old creation but I don't live in the old creation as an old creation citizen. I live in the old creation as a new creation citizen. I've been sent here and you too have been sent here to serve another king with another constitution with another law and another purpose. One of the great problems in Christianity today is that we think that we're citizens of this age. And we live as people who are part of this present age. And this present age is evil and it is dark. And it is not to be that which gives us our marching orders. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of a new creation. They're part of the new thing that God is doing. We have a new identity, a new citizenship. Final, number three, the third example of this new perspective that Paul has. The cross has also radically changed our missionary identity, our understanding of what our function is in the world. Notice how Paul develops this in verses 18 to 20. He says, all this is from God. Everything I've been talking about, it's a God thing. It's not something I made up. It's not something that just appeared. God is at work in history doing all of this. God is at work in history. He sent his son. He died on the cross. He changed my perspective, the lens through which I see life. He made me a part of this new creation. All this is what God is doing. And then he continues. And he says, and what did God do? God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is that, Paul? Paul said, well, let me explain. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 
what do you mean, Paul? Well, let me explain. Paul says, he didn't count their trespasses against them. And what did he do for us? Well, he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, here's the conclusion. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Paul says, God has done all the things that I've been talking about. It's all a God thing. It's all a part of his purpose, his plan, what he's doing in history. And it all comes down to this. God, who is at war with humanity, or better yet, humanity was at war with God. We were in rebellion against God. There was a massive uh, offensive taking place, a civil war. And God, the king, in the midst of this civil war, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring about peace. I'm going to do everything that's necessary to end the war and to bring peace to humanity. And so God sent his son as an offering who paid the price to make peace possible. In other words, God has has written a peace treaty. And Christ is the ink that God used to write this peace treaty. And the, the, the treaty of peace basically says, I've done everything necessary for there to be peace between you and me. I've done everything that needs to be done. It's all done. All you have to do is sign the treaty. But there's a question. How will the terms of peace reach the rebel army? How will the peace treaty be be published so that everyone can see it and read it and have a chance to sign it? What is God's strategy to get this peace done? It's us. It's us. It's the only way. God said, I'm going to take some of the ex-rebels and I'm going to give them the treaty of peace written in the blood of Christ and I'm going to send them out as my agents and they're going to call people to sign the treaty so that there can be peace, so this war can end. And by the way, it's his only strategy. Paul says that is, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents another government. He represents another country. He is sent from one country to another, but he doesn't represent the country he lives in. He represents the country from which he came. He brings the constitution, the laws, the priorities, the values of another world into the world where he is sent. And Paul says, that's our reality. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent the new creation. And the new creation king. And he sent us as his agents into this world and said, offer my my terms of peace to this rebel army. That's your function in the world. Your function in the world is to be an agent of the kingdom of God in this world. In everything you are and everything you do, as a parent, as an engineer, as a mother, as a father, as a, as a student, all of us are agents 
ambassadors of the King of Heaven sent to this place to call men and women to sign the treaty so that there might be peace. God has done everything. And now we're his instruments. Paul says, that's how I view my ministry. That's my new perspective on missionary ministry. My role, my, my function in life is to be an ambassador. How do you see yourself in your relationship with this world? Do you merely look at it as the enemy? Oh, this culture, all it wants to do is, you know, distort Christianity. All it wants to do is, is, is deny my rights. All it wants to do is, is that how you view this world? No longer. You have to view this world as Paul viewed it. You are an agent of the King of God, the kingdom of God, sent here not to complain about the world, but to be an agent bringing a new world to bear on this world. You are to live a life so different, so radically different, representing the values and the priorities and the love of the kingdom of God so that the people of this world will see the difference and say, where do I sign? I want peace with that God. Last point, really quickly, is the third aspect of Paul's ministry was his message. The message of Paul's ministry. Paul concludes in verses 20 and 21, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. And then Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our message is a passionate appeal to a rebellious people to be reconciled to God. And what we offer in that message is the example of someone who was absolutely spotless, perfect, sinless, but who became sin. He did not become a sinner. Christ never sinned. But he became sin. He became the guilt of sin. So that we, who were nothing but sinful could become the righteousness of God. We do not become sinless. We become righteous. There was a great exchange. All of that perfection that is Christ was exchanged for all of that imperfection that was nosotros, that was us. Sorry, Spanglish again. That was us. All of our imperfection... All of our sinfulness was placed on him who never, ever sinned. The, the illustration, it's not perfect, but I, I like it because it helps me to see what I, what's going on here. There's two bank accounts. You've probably heard this illustration. There's two bank accounts. The first bank account has my name on it, Jim Panaggio. And you look at the bank account and it is just full. It is just rich. But all of it are debits. Debits? Yeah, debits. That's the bad stuff, right? You can tell I didn't do really well, really well in accounting. Anyway, 
all the debits. It's just filled with debits. It's all my sin. And then there's another bank account that says Jesus Christ. And it's filled with all the credits, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, all of his beauty is right there. And God steps up and he erases my name and he puts Jesus Christ. And he erases Jesus' name and he puts my name right there. And he says, I'm switching accounts. I'm imputing. That is, I'm offering. I'm giving to you all of the righteousness of Christ. And I'm giving to my son all the sin that you committed. And this great exchange means that I am now the righteousness of Christ in God. Or the righteousness of God in Christ. And Christ takes on my sin and becomes the unrighteousness of Jim in me. And that great exchange means that I am justified, absolved of my sin, forgiven, and given new life. That's our message. That's the message that we bring to a sinful world in rebellion against God. We say, be reconciled to God. He's done everything for you. He's given you as a gift the righteousness of Christ. And now when you stand before him on that day, that final day, you don't have to worry because all he sees is what Christ has accomplished and he lets us enter into his kingdom forever and ever. But there's a whole mass of humanity that knows nothing of that imputation. They know nothing of that great exchange. And they will stand with their own righteousness before God. And that is a hopeless cause. Brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors of Christ. Our mission as members of the new creation is to represent the new creation existence in this ugly world in which we live. To bring the hope of tomorrow. To bring the beauty of the future into today so that people can see and hear and feel and understand that the God of heaven and earth has offered them peace. Be an ambassador for Christ. That's your function. That's your role. Represent the new creation in all you say and do. And by God's grace, we can see this world changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonder of the message of the righteousness of Christ being given freely to us through his sacrificial death. Thank you for what the cross has done in us and in the world. Thank you for the promise of a new creation. Help us, O oh God, to represent that new reality even in the midst of a dying world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.